0: The best product.
1: I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now.
0: For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climate. Cause no unnecessary harm. Suborganic organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the
1: clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To so give some love back to this river that doesn't have any, it's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com.
0: With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. So last year we were offered a unique opportunity by the Five Point Film Festival. Come to Carbondale, Colorado, pick four guests, and create a live version of the Dirtbag Diaries. Patagonia would present it. In between sets, New Belgium would serve up some of their brews for everybody in attendance. Apparently, it was a hit because this year they invited Becca and I to return to the cozy venue of Steve's Guitars for another round of stories and another round of guests. This year, we thought we would do something slightly different. We wanted all the stories to focus around a theme, around the moment when things go wrong, when the shit hits the fan. It's in these moments that we find ourselves questioning our course, second guessing our decisions. Sometimes it works out for the better, and other times not. But regardless, these moments ripple out into our lives in unpredictable ways. Today, you are going to hear stories from free skier Josh Duick, who lost the use of his legs after an accident, and expedition kayaker Chris Korbulik, who lost his close friend and mentor on Central Africa's Lakuga River. Next week, we will have two more stories. For you from alpinist mark ritchie and photographer ben moon we aren't going to do too much editing we want you to feel like you are in the room and maybe next year you can come see it in person i'm fitzca welcome to the five point film festival you're listening to the dirtbag diaries age of 23, Josh Dueck was coaching freestyle skiing. He was living the ski life, pushing hard, partying, taking enormous risks was a part of his life. After building a series of jumps for a competition, Josh decided he would do a trial run through the course. Entering into the jump, he misgaged the speed, overshot the landing, and fell 100 feet out of the air. His story is presented in an incredible short film called The Freedom Chair. He also, in the same year, became the first person to land a backflip on a sit-ski. You owe it to yourself to watch both of the short films highlighting his things. You can find them on our website. But here he is from Five Point.
2: It was 2004, and I was coaching. And I guess the easiest way to start describing a bit of character is I was full of piss and vinegar. have been for a long time in my life, and... uh, I think I got away with being uh, kind of well beyond my, my limits often. I was always pushing harder and faster. And it was kind of my way of fitting in. You know, I, I definitely grew up uh, with some insecurities and that was my way to kind of fit in with people. And, and I kind of got known as a bit of a reckless guy, but it was applauded by my friends. And, and eventually that, that kind of behavior just was bound to catch up. And looking back, I could probably see some precursors coming in. Like I avoided death. And, Uh, a handful of times just prior to that accident and uh, basically just came in too too fast into the jump and like I mentioned last night it was a battle of ego versus intuition and I knew deep down that it was a bad idea but went for it anyhow and over rotated the front flip and overshot the landing hill which kind of brought me down super heavy and dislocated my back and you know, when I regained consciousness, it was a combination of you know not being able to move and the fear that came with that and you know being embarrassed too because I knew it was a bad idea. Part of my job is to lead by example and, and I just did an exceptionally poor job of leading by example. Right, like I, I showed them something that was really stupid. So that actually had a huge impact on my life, the guilt that I carried from that moment. But uh, they, they carted me down to the hospital and it's heavy. You know, I can't feel anything, I can't move anything, and you know, I kept repeating to myself a couple mantras and it was like everything in life happens for a reason and nothing's gonna happen to me that I'm not strong enough to deal with. And it finally like everything in my life has accumulated to this moment to prepare me for this this time in my life. and I just for whatever reason it was probably sheer panic that brought these things to mind but I kept repeating them. I get down to the hospital and the doctor uh, reviews the X-rays, knows a bit about me, knows that I'm a skier and that I'm an outdoor kid, and you know I belong in the mountains. And so he kind of evaluates what he's seen, which is a dislocated back, a severed spinal cord, which is going to result in paralysis. And he's got to break the news to me. So I don't know what he did, but actually I, I do know him a lot better now. He's become a close friend because he composed himself and came into the hospital room and, and said exactly, you're going to kick ass in a wheelchair. And obviously th- there was an emotion, like this avalanche of emotion, no pun intended, just overwhelmed me, right? Because that worst fear just came to life. And he said, before you know it, we're going to have you back in the mountains riding the sit with all your buddies. And right away, you know, I accepted the fact that no matter how I reacted to the situation, it wasn't going to change the outcome. The paralysis was permanent, what was done was done. Now I can just choose to move forward.
0: You know, was it always just like a clear focus about what you needed to do, or did you go through moments where um, depression or self-pity could overwhelm you?
2: No, I definitely just liked to party with it for the first couple years. You know, I'm a goal-setter, so I was setting new goals, and goal one was like, how do I sit up in bed? How do I get outside and hang out with my buddies and just crack a cold one and just enjoy the summer? How can I do that? How do I learn how to take care of my new body? That's a big, big chore. How do I, so I kept setting these goals and it was rewarding, you know, I'd celebrate each baby step because it was basically like being reborn and I had to figure that out and it wasn't without its challenges and hiccups, but, you know, I kind of just fought it through it and I kept moving towards and gravitating to the mountains going back to, to learn how to ski again and then I did that and I figured out and it wasn't easy at first but I figured out how to ski and then everything that I loved about it came back and uh, my ability to read terrain and you know feel the ski underneath me was you know quick to return so that was really rewarding and I just I've always told myself that this happened in the perfect time of my life and I think that's how I would like to respond whether it happened if I was 15 or 45 it happened when I was 23 and I said this is the best time. It was 2004, I learned to ski in 2005, in 2006 people started talking to me about the Paralympics in Vancouver and I said well that's a pretty cool story to tell, you know, just looking at it from that point of view, I'm like I've always wanted to be a skier, I've always wanted to go and represent Canada, what a great goal to set. So I set this goal and I keep moving forward and keep moving forward and this positive momentum is just amazing. Right, to be a part of that and to see the impact it's having on the people around me and inversely the impact that it's having on myself and the spiritual, emotional, and physical growth that I've experienced in that time. So 2010 comes and it's really... People told me in 2006 that I was insane for even thinking about qualifying and for me to actually boast that I wanted to win a gold medal was... It was, I don't know, brash I suppose. Um, I didn't really... That was a vague objective. Uh, A good friend of mine says, you know, you might as well shoot for the stars, because if you shoot for anything less than, you know, and you surpass that, you know, you might as well keep, you know, set your sights high. So that's what I did. And uh, I got to 2010, and I I marked my goal. I I won a silver medal, which was a huge accomplishment. And the games came to pass, and nobody really prepares you for transition. Whether you succeed or fail at a project, it's sometimes nice to still have a vision, whether it be clear or vague, of where you want to go afterwards, and it was a cliff drop. I had no idea. So I thought, well, this is an easy remedy. I'm going to go to Mexico and drink tequila, <laughs> which initiated the Mexicoma. <laughs> Funny, but not, because it's depression kicked in, and I started to focus on all the things about the disability that I didn't enjoy. And those things grabbed quickly. I thought the momentum that brought me up was powerful. Well, the momentum that wanted to bring me down was equal, if not greater, at that point in time. And I was losing control. So I came back from the Mexican home and I went to a Paralympic hangover for for a few months, almost a year. And it was just like, it was getting out of control and it was causing a huge tax on my relationship. My wife didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't blame her because I was just... I was a dick. Like I, was, I was focusing on the parts of my life that sucked and even though my life as a whole from the outside looked pretty good and I was living out a dream that I you know, had for a long time. But on the inside it was crumbling and that was a harsh reality check. So just had some conversations with some people that I really hold close to my life and we decided that, okay, you know, maybe just for the intern, we set some new goals and, and give yourself a new positive objective to work towards and then you know I I told myself that when I'm older and wiser and stronger perhaps then I will address some of these demons and these these dragons deep down and uh, I don't avoid them, I don't deny them, I'm not trying to cover them up I'm aware that they're there and I'm aware that they're there for a reason it's just a part of life and we all live a life with challenges Uh, I've always been Extremely passionate about skiing. Um, prior to my accident I never really had the confidence and that's why I was really kind of uh, a little bit haywire and, and more into the lifestyle and the party because I never really believed in myself and it, it was almost like by doing all those other idiotic stunts it was giving myself an excuse for failure. And after my accident happened, my sense of belief in myself had changed. Um, I saw what was possible. And I was around so many amazing people that just kind of lifted my spirits. And it was no longer about trying to prove anything to anybody, it was just about being. Mm -hmm. And when I allowed myself just to be, then things just slowed down and I got better at what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I could have been good before if I believed in myself.
1: Do you
0: think that the that moment when when you were being taken to the hospital and you were running the mantras to your head of of everything happens for a reason eight years later do you you still does that mantra stand true or was it just something you were telling yourself
2: no for sure it stands true I think our body has a brilliant way of communicating with us when we're too stupid to listen and um in my particular case, I wouldn't accuse anybody else of that. But for me, you know, I think uh, I needed to have a little bit of uh, a start-stop in my life, and I needed to, you know, I was on a certain learning curve and I was going a certain direction, but it was a little bit chaotic, and this grounded me for a little bit and just kind of opened up my eyes, uh, brought a sense of deep appreciation and gratitude into my world. time that I felt light and free really since my accident was when I landed the backflip and and that was a huge I didn't even realize it because I had to move on to the next project we all kind of saddled up and I went someplace and the crew went someplace else and it was a few days later when I just looked at it 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 still gives me shivers to this day usually I like to look at the audience to see how they respond to some of the footage like with the freedom chair I'll watch you not the film but with the backflip I'm like and, um, that, that was a really special time in my life and it felt like there was a burden that was removed from my shoulders because I actually proved to myself that I do have the ability to listen to my intuition and let it guide me, you know, whether it's, you know, to steer me clear of danger or to open up new doors of possibility and, and I look at that all the time, sometimes maybe even a little bit too much, you know, before the backflip I, uh, you know, occurred a couple of minor injuries. Like, for example, a broken finger. I broke it on a Super G panel training and uh, put me out of the game in terms of training for about a month and a half. But a broken finger when you're in a wheelchair is a huge deal, you know. I couldn't transfer after surgery. I couldn't get in and out of my wheelchair. I couldn't get onto the toilet. I couldn't get around. Like, it was a broken finger. I felt like such a wuss, but I couldn't do anything. And then I was stubborn, so I was trying to push harder to... And I kept kind of bending and banging my finger and it was slowing down the healing process and I fell out of my chair and it caused another injury and it was just like and then I'm thinking about going upside down I'm like this is suicide really like what am I signing up for so I was almost wondering if these were signs or precursors my body was telling me not to do it and that's when I really came to the conclusion and I told everybody when we're building a jump I said it's 50-50 boys I said you could build it but I may not hit it I said if I do hit it I'm going to stomp it that I can tell you but there's a good chance that I might not even sign up, I might not even hit it. We have to be ready for that. And, and for me, that was just kind of my own way of taking that expectation off, removing that pressure, and, and making sure that I could clearly listen to that intuitive feel. And when I was in the top of the in run, when the day was finally right, and it took a few days for it finally to present itself, actually a couple of weeks, before the weather broke and we felt safe about going for it. But uh, when it was right, it was go time. You know, I was just calm. It was kind of funny, I'm coming down the in run for my first attempt and I'm like, oh fuck me, I feel pretty calm. I'm like, that's weird, like, is that normal? Shouldn't I be freaking out here? Because that's a huge jump. I'm coming into the jump and like focus on the pop and I came close on the first effort and I stuck it on the second and we just kept playing all day until I felt really good about what we had accomplished. So. It was an opportunity for me to challenge myself to listen to that intuition.
0: It seems like this is another one of the situations where the positive energy is on the up and up. And, and what, how do you keep growing? I mean, is it is the solution just to just keep skiing and keep slaying powder for the rest of the life? Like, what do you do? What do you take? How do you keep building on the positive things that have just happened to you?
2: That's a great question, and that's a super popular question these days, you know, what's next? You know, someone's like, Are you going to do a double? Man, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> the worst thing is, is not all my efforts doing the backflip were as good as it looked in film, and the double's totally doable. But I don't see that in my future. That's not where I want to take things. Um, I see, you know, planning a transition right now. You know, I think I'm going to ski hard for a few more years, because I've got a bucket list of things that I want to achieve, but it's more like fluidity and style and trying to find flow down the mountain. And somebody that I've always looked up to is a guy like Craig Kelly, you know, he always found a way and his metaphor was like trying to visualize water coming down the mountain, you know, and that was the line he would pick. So for me, there's there's things like that, that I still want to explore, maybe playing a little bit in mountaineering. How can I get myself out there upon my own device? And how far can I get into those environments and just experience that? Um, but planning the transition, it's, it's all about, you know, what do I want to do next? And, and that may take me a few years to really fall into that. But one thing that I'm really inspired by, there's a foundation down in uh, California called the High Five Foundation. And they've got the C.R. Johnson Center for Healing. And they've got a few things on the go that's really inspiring. And what they're doing is they're bringing in people that have recently acquired something dramatic in their life, perhaps a loss of mobility, and giving them an opportunity to experience freedom through sport in a way that they probably never thought possible. Now, for example, I'm going to go down to the High Five Foundation and learn to surf next month. That's something new for me. Surfing would be amazing. I'm seeing footage of these guys ripping 10-foot barrels, and they're sitting down on this board. It's crazy. So I I don't aspire to go that far that fast. But just to be on the water and try something new and learn from what they're doing, and I'm involved in a grassroots foundation in D.C. called LiveItLoveIt.org. And it's all about the same thing, you know, empowerment through adventure. And we want to give people an opportunity to experience that freedom of movement without limitation. Thank you so much, Um,
0: everyone. So we're going to take a short break. They're going to do another round of beers. And I just want to say thank you, Josh. Chris Korbulik has made a name for himself as an expedition kayaker with a taste for rivers and first descents that are difficult to get to geographically, topographically, and politically. These are regions that are as difficult to navigate on land as they are in water. A year and a half ago, Chris, his regular boating partner Ben Stukesbury, and African kayaking legend Henry Kotsia were at the tail end of an incredible seven-week trip through Central Africa. They had just paddled through the most difficult stretches of their main goal, the Lacuga River. Many of you will be familiar with the story Chris is about to tell. But what none of us has heard is what's happened since, and how it's rippled through Chris's life. Chris takes it from here.
1: You know, usually on on these trips, when we hear from people that you don't want to go on this river, that you... It's the most dangerous place that there's no way you'll ever make it through. You know, that's what we want to hear. You know, it's, like, it's like class five, it's going to be this huge canyon, it's going to be waterfalls. And you know it's going to be this incredible scenery. passed through these communities, heard about the human conflict that had been going on, but also heard about um, these problems with hippos and crocodiles and these things that we had known about before but things that Hendry had dealt with for years and years and things that we had just dealt with on uh, on the Nile River and, and other rivers in the area. But we asked them what their main concern was, and the second thing was crocodile danger, right? Because they have to go get water from, from the river, and, you know, it's this massive danger. There are crocodiles. Kids have been taken from that community upstream, Um over the, last, over the year before, there was, no, there was nothing specific. It was just, you know, it was, it's dangerous down there. Um, and this, this happens here, and I don't know if you really want to go. Um, but, you know, this was our, this was our river. This is, this is why we went on this whole expedition, to go down the Lakuga, to make the first descent of the Lakuga. So on our, our fourth day, we were paddling down and you know it was after the seven, you know, the best seven weeks of of all of our lives and um, we just finished the white water, we knew we were getting into a hundred more miles of pretty much totally flat water, which isn't the most exciting thing. Um, and you know, we were just at this super high point because everything had just been perfect. Everything, it was this dream trip. And, um, you know, a a strike of lightning just out of nowhere. We're paddling from, you know, I was as far away. You know, Hendry was was paddling right here, and Ben was paddling uh, a boat length length in front of us. And uh, a crocodile came, and Came onto Henry's shoulder and pulled him underwater, um, and we never, you know, never saw him again. Um, so that's, you know, that's our uh, not not so much a close call. <laughs> I guess that's, you know, that's his that's his wrong, and that's as bad as it can possibly go.
0: obviously you and Ben um had different processes or basically you had to take different routes for for processing this movement out and Ben went back to California and started working on the film Kodoma and you went back you went back and spent time with um Henry's family and his closest friends and his um greatest adventure partner too um and if you could just talk a little bit about where that led you, because I mean, you could have quit kayaking altogether. I mean, it, it, you know, we talked earlier, and you'd said that nothing really hit bad had ever happened to you, and you'd been boating since you were a little kid, and it could have made you doubt everything. So if you would just share the story of where this has evolved, what this moment has done, and and where it's where
1: it's taken you, it's. Um... It has been a year and a half. Um, Obviously, it hasn't gotten any easier to talk about. Um, But yeah, after we got out of the Congo, um, we both came back to the States. Uh, I think we both spent Christmas with our families. And then I turned around and after seven days in the US, went straight back to Uganda. and had a big memorial with a um, hundred of Hendry's closest friends who had come in from you know from all over Central and Southern Africa, from Europe, from the States, from South America, you know from all these places and all these other people that Hendry had affected so greatly, and you know to have have this community of people immediately you know, to all of us kind of surrounded. Um, And surrounding this um, you know the the loss that we were all all going through and all sharing uh, I think was just the perfect way for me to to deal with the the trauma Um, you know and and like you said Ben was kind of locked up in this (laughs) editing cave already Um, so we were on We were on extremely different paths. I was surrounded by this community and family and friends, and one that was so supportive and wasn't asking questions about what we were doing, why we were there, and, you know, what kind of stupid idea we had (laughs) to be there, you know, because they had all done the same things. They'd all been on the river with Hendry and they'd done these rivers and you know, face, face the same kind of dangers, and having that support immediately, and especially from his family, his, his mother came up to Uganda, and you know, we all went on the Nile River together, where, uh, uh, right where it comes out of Lake Victoria, where Hendry had been living, and you know, we kind of just all sat out on the river and said, this is what Hendry loved, this is what we love to do, and I don't think we're gonna stop. You know, there's nothing. There's nothing that's gonna stop us from from continuing on. And you know, Henry would hate that. You know, this is this is what he loved to do. And he had he had been he had, had those close calls before, and he had had. You know, he had lost he had lost friends on the river. And um, you know, all that, all that he wanted to do. Was was carry on and continue and go for the go for the next adventure, and you know not necessarily the next big thing, not the most difficult thing, but something that was that was satisfying. It was personally satisfying, and you know I think um, all of us getting together, and especially with uh, Pete Meredith, who's Henry's best friend, who, who did all these adventures together for years. Um, you know, for for me, he was the hardest one to to tell you know about about what had happened, and it was just I don't know. It was so it was heart wrenching to to sit there and and recount what had happened and and not have you know because I think just with that kind of relationship, they had gone through so many things for Pete to not be there for these random you know first time guys to Africa, um, our first trip with Hendry, um, you know, I can't imagine that it was an easy thing for for his best friends to to take in, um, but then at the same time they, they turned around and said, you know, go, keep going. You know, Central Africa is this huge unknown place with the most, some of the most unbelievable rivers in the world, and you know that's um, I think a huge uh, calling for us, and you know we we returned. I just got back three weeks ago from four and a half months in Central and Southern Africa, and um, you know I think that uh, it's all we can do because of that. Just immediately on on our trip with Hendry, we saw this place that he loved, not through like not through the eyes of of Western media, of our preconceptions, but uh, but through the eyes of, of Henry, who had lived there, who had grown up there <coughs> and loved this place and these people and guided us through, you know, kind of with, with his eyes, you know, said we're not we're not just here for rivers. you gotta you have to look around. There's so much more going on. And, and the real adventure you can have and the real learning experience you can have isn't on the river. You know, it's with, it's with these people who live along it, who, who suffer along it, who have been treated terribly for years, but who still laugh and dance and um, invite you into their homes. And, um, you know, immediately I just instilled in us, uh, There's a longing and the love for for the place
0: do you, it do you in a sense sort of feel like those those adventures and those big goals that, that Peter and Henry have been chasing together uh, of these descents. do you think that, in a way, you know, you're not replacing Henry, but, but do you think that you have inherited that legacy, that you've taken that, that was kind of what
1: he gave you? Just what, what we learned Im- immediately along on, on the trip from Henry um, is, is something that, that we'll carry on with forever. You know, there's, there's never been another Hendry. There's never going to be another Hendry and, you know, there's no reason for us or me to, to try to be Hendry you know, there are a million reasons to try to be like Hendry you know, to live this life like, like he led um, you know, so I hope I certainly hope that we can you know, c- carry on what, what he was doing and, um, and, and the life that he was living or you know, like the life he was living. Don't want to reduce you know, Henry's death to an exclamation point on those seven weeks for us, or you know, on this whole this incredible life that he had led. Um, but you know, every everything that we learned was from from him. Everything that we experienced was like summed up so immediately and succinctly in you know, in him, him being killed and, um, and everybody in this community around him has taken, uh, all the experiences they had with him and on this, on the rivers and gone forward with it and, you know, just run with it. And, uh, it's just gotten, you know, it's, it's certainly very, very different, um, for us and for for this community, but um, it's 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 still incredible, and you know there's so so many things that all these people want to continue doing, and that we want to keep doing, and you know if we can be lucky enough to say that we're carrying on Henry's legacy, I you know I think that's what we would absolutely love to do. do you think, yeah,
0: I think that there's sometimes this this cliche in the outdoor world when we lose somebody that, that, and it can, I think it can slightly be, this is my opinion, it can be a little bit of sloppy thinking, but we often say like, well, he died doing what he loved or, or she died doing what she loved And it, yes, but it's something, would he have considered that? I mean, is that how you look at that now? Or is that just,
1: was this just some random freak accident? I was used to think this, that saying that, this saying, you know, he died doing what he loved it was, it was kind of an easy, an easy out, I like an easy, easy way to ex- explain um, to, to friends, to family, that, that it was okay, that everything's going to be fine, um, you know, and I can't imagine, you know, saying that to, to somebody's mother after they're killed, you know, it's okay, he died doing what he loved. Um, but at the same time, I've I've taken that, and you know I think the whole community and even Andrew's family has taken that and and turned it and said that absolutely he there's no other way that he he would have taken death. You know it's it, it is fair to say, and it's still I, w- I wish there was. Um, a a better way to explain it but you know as as simple as that is you know I think it's perfect and I think even the way you know the way Hendry reacted as as it was happening um, was you know speaks to exactly that that he He died doing exactly what he wanted to be doing, and exactly what he loved to be doing. Um, You know, in in that he wasn't um, there. He wasn't. uh, I guess there was no. call for help, you know, there was no scream, cry, there was, you know, what he, what he said was a recognition, you know, a, 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 realization, and it wasn't frantic, um, it was just, you know, okay, this, like, I've been here before, I've been close to this before, and, and now it's finally happening. You know, it's just... It was this realization that, that that time had come. And that all the time, all the other times leading up to it were... Um, were, were in preparation. And, um, you know, that's something that he's sp- he spoke about all the time. Actually, something that... Uh, he was almost pre- he was preoccupied with, you know, not not nervous about it, not scared about it, but uh, you know, in in the life that he was leading, it was always um, something at the forefront of, of his conversation and and his mentality. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey.
0: Yes. Thanks to our guests, Josh and Chris. We'll have all their films and trailers up on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. I encourage you to check them out. They are worth the time. A big thanks to the Five Point Film Festival for making this event happen. Julie, Justin, and Jake, you all create truly a special event that we hope to be involved with for years to come. Thanks again. A big thanks to our sponsors. Patagonia makes this entire event, the whole film festival possible. They've also made the last five years of The Diaries possible. New Belgium supplies the beer atmosphere and liquid stoke, but also their own unique creative energy to events like this. Thank you. Music today by Dreamin, Ishk and Finn Riggins. You can download the tracks and get more information about the bands on our website, Dirtbag Diaries. We're only halfway there. Stay tuned for the next volume Photographer Ben Moon and alpine climber Mark Ritchie present two more tales of life-changing moments. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, maker of a better bike rack. Check them out online at kuatracks.com. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirt Bike Diaries.